Judges chapter number two. I, I've been a little apprehensive about today when preacher said possibly preach tonight, and I've only had one thought in my heart, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm always nervous in these kind of settings because I don't consider myself a camp meeting preacher, and what I have tonight is not really a camp meeting style sermon. And I really, to be honest with you, I've really just got a burden on my heart tonight. And I want to just give you my burden. I don't have a, not much of an outline or anything like that. And I don't know who's preaching next. You'll shout when he comes. But tonight, I'm just going to, I'm just going to give you the burden on my heart and the trust of the Lord to help us tonight. And so I'm going to get right into it, Judges chapter 2. And I'll begin reading in verse number 6. And the Bible said, When Joshua had let the people go, the children... Of Israel went every man into his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being a hundred and ten years old. They buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnath Harris. In the Mount of Ephraim on the north side of the hill Gash. And verse 10 is my text where I'll just take my thought from. And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers. And there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord. Nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. The book of Judges tells of a sad time. It's the dark ages of Israel's history. The children of Israel by this time have settled in the promised land and the land has been divided and they're building cities and settling in and becoming a nation that God will bless. And in those early years, they prospered in every way except spiritual. Four times in this book, the age is characterized as every man did that which was right in his own eyes. You know the cycle well, seven Apostasies, seven servitudes, seven heathen nations, seven deliverances. There was a leadership vacuum in the nation when Joshua died, and the compromise that you find in the first chapter becomes full blown apostasy in the last chapter. I was preaching through the book of Joshua several years ago, and I was emphasizing the failure of the nation. But it struck me that the failure of the nation really was the fruit of the failure of the family. If the family had not failed, then the nation would not have failed. I believe that if in the book of Judges and in that era, if the nations, if the family had held together, the nation would have never fallen off into apostasy. And the apostasy of the nation really is just the fruit of the apostasy of the family. The absence of godly leadership in the home was uh, produced an absence of godly leadership in the nation. I really believe that the greatest ministry that I can have as a pastor at my church is to help strengthen marriages and to come alongside mom and dad and try to have Christ in the home for those children. Because I recognize that my church is only as strong as the families in our church. So when you survey the book of Judges, you come to three judges. They're obscure men, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. There's no marks against them, and so we have to assume that they're good and godly men. We don't know much about them, just like we don't know much about godly men 
in this era. Then you come to a crisis in the form of a Canaanite king and there is no man to step up to lead. And a woman has to step up to the plate because no man will. Barak is a weak man and he'll only go to battle if Deborah goes with him. The hero of the battle ends up being another woman when Jael kills Sisera with, with a tent peg. And you can't miss that here's two women with more courage and leadership than any man in Israel. Then you come to the story of Gideon. Gideon was from a family of idolaters. That's family failure. God gave him victory over the Midianites, but then Gideon went right back to the idolatry that he came out of and he took his children with him, and that's family failure. He became a polygamist, added a Canaanite concubine to his harem, and that's family failure. His son Abimelech wanted the kingly title that he wouldn't take for himself, and so he sought to get it by getting rid of all the potential rivals, his 70 brethren by his father. That's family failure. You have the story of Jephthah. Jephthah is the son of a Gileadite and a Canaanite prostitute. That's family failure. He's ostracized by his own brethren. That's family failure. He ends his family line with a foolish vow. Take it however you want to, but a daughter is made to suffer because of his foolish words. That's family failure. You come to the story of Samson, a man with great potential, but he's a rebellious son. That's family failure. Lusted after a Philistine woman, died without having any children. Family failure. And the rest of the book just progressively gets worse. In chapter 17 and 18, you have Micah and his mother as idolaters. That's family failure. In chapter 19, you have Levite and his concubines. That's family failure. You have the Benjamin, men of Benjamin that kidnap 400 women and make them their wives. That's family failure. Even when you come to 1 Samuel chapter 1, we're still in the area of judges. And the first thing you see is Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. That's family failure. And so the apostasy of the nation really is just the fruit of the apostasy of the home. I believe that if mother and father had taken Deuteronomy 6 to heart, I, I believe if they had made that their motto, then... Maybe you wouldn't have had the era of the judges. Maybe if somebody would have taken the motto of Joshua that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, then perhaps this era would have never happened. But Judges 1 and chapter 2 looks forward 300 years and it summarizes the entire era. And for me, verse number 10 is the key verse where it says that also that generation, Joshua's generation, were gathered unto their fathers... And there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. One generation dies off and another generation rises up. One generation knew the Lord. One generation is not familiar with the Lord. And it seems that what the fathers had embraced, the children have abandoned. And something has been lost between the generations. It is possible that we have the same situation in this room tonight. There's a mom, there's a dad here. You've loved God and you've served God for years and you've tried to raise your children in the right way. But somehow those children have gone off and they've left church and they've left Christianity and they don't want to hear anything about it. And something is lost between the generations. 
The generation of Joshua's day is not perfect, but they certainly feared God. They conquered the land. They enjoyed the blessings of God. And when you read the book of Joshua, you don't read about idolatry and apostasy and murmuring and and mixed marriages with the Canaanites. There's a wholesomeness and a blessedness. There's a spiritual emphasis in the book of Joshua. But Joshua dies. That generation eventually all passes off from the scene. The last gray-haired man of Joshua's generation is gone. And now it is left to a second generation. This will be a generation that will embrace the gods of the pagans. This will be a generation that sacrifices their children to the heathen. This will be a generation that abandons the law of God as their moral compass. This will be a generation that becomes a God unto themselves. Every man doing that which is right in his own eyes. And I say to you tonight that something has been lost between the generations. I have preached several times on the differences between a first generation Christian and a second generation Christian. Sitting in this room tonight are men and women who were not raised in a Christian home. We heard a little bit of the testimony of Brother Dana Williams this morning when he preached. And, uh, and there's some of you, maybe you were raised in a cultic religion, a Catholic church perhaps. I, I, I don't know. Maybe you lived a life of dark sin. You got saved later in life and in your family tree there's no christians behind you and maybe there's even very few christians in front of you and you are a first generation christian that's not my story my story is that i was raised in a pastor's home i i was taken to church every week of my life and i can count on one hand probably the times that i've not been to church on a sunday and and and, and even now i am woefully Ignorant of many of the devices of this world. I, I have never drank. I have never smoked. I've never doped it up. As far as I know, I've never cussed. One or two a few times, never have. Uh, I, I was educated in Christian schools, went to a Christian college, married a godly wife. And I have known nothing for 48 years. I have known nothing but this life. And by the way, I thank God for that. I, I really do. If you're here tonight and that is your heritage and if you can say that you were raised in a Christian home and you don't have the scars of deep sin and the regrets of wasted years, you, you ought to get on your knees every day and say, God, I thank you that I've got the encouragement of a preacher and a youth pastor and siblings and a mom and a dad that encourages me and I'm not fighting to serve you. That, that's a great, great blessing. Sitting in our church at Victory Baptist, we've got basically three different age groups or three generations. We have a generation of old saints that have been saved as long, if not longer, than I've been alive. I've got men and women in my church that have been saved for 40 and 50 years. And right now, they're just ready to go to heaven whenever Jesus calls. And that group of saints, they're not, they're not looking for contemporary Christian music and they're, they're not looking for a new Bible. They're not falling in with some cute new style of worship. No, they just stay in this course. And if our church did want to go contemporary, those gray haired men and women would rise up in arms and say, that's not happening here. Thank God for that. We have in our church a generation of middle-aged believers, my age, and they're faithful and they're giving and they're serving and they're, they're, they're quasi-separated, but they're not as hardcore, not as 
puritanical, not as hard-nosed as those old gray-haired men and women them. Some of them might would be open to new ideas. Maybe just a little progressive, maybe just a little contemporary, just a little ecumenical. We have a generation in our church of young marrieds, 20 years old, single adults, and they're growing, and they're learning, and they're maturing. But there is an edge that is missing when you compare the two generations. There is a crowd in our church that are drawn to the Andy Stanleys and the Matt Chandlers and the Mark Driscolls and, and, and the John Pipers. There, there is a group. I, I, I don't want to kill the camp meeting, but there is a group in our church that thinks that, that, that jars of clay and third day and that Avalon is good Christian music. Not all of them, but, but so many of that younger generation has lost the grit and the edge and the resolve of that older generation. And something has been lost between the generations. It has been said, it has been said that eight of ten teenagers in the typical Baptist church, and this is not typical, but eight of ten teenagers in the typical Baptist church will graduate from high school, walk out, and never come back. Yes, and the hyper-emotional, ecumenical, mega-church that's down the road from your church is where they're going to. And they're not reaching converts by the thousand. They're filling their pews by appealing to the Baptist kids in our churches that have grown tired of the old-fashioned way and they're looking for something that's hip, something that's cool, something that's trendy. I'm ashamed to say I've got a good church tonight. And I'm ashamed to say that I have teenagers sitting in my church. I have singles sitting in my church right now that have sat in my church pews for 10, 15 years that have heard me preach and they have gone to Christian school and they've sang in our youth choir and we've taken them around the world on mission trips and they've got the best parents that you could ask for and they're bored. They're sick of it. They're, they're, they're gospel hardened. They listen to pop music. They sit in chat rooms. And, and they, they're always pushing the boundaries. And they text during church. And, and they, I don't want to kill camp meeting tonight. I, I really don't. But it's the only thing I've got. It's all I've got, all right? They, they, the girls the girls are wearing their short skirts. And the boys are putting on their skinny jeans. And, and, and I'm glad tonight. I, I really am glad tonight that, that, that the devil doesn't have all of our young people. I, I'm glad for that. It thrills my heart to watch these kids kids up here singing and serving God and in church on a Tuesday night. But I'm watching too many of them leave our Baptist churches and go down to the ecumenical, charismatic, evangelical thing down the road. And I'm watching too many of them drop their standards and abandoning the faith that they once were raised in. I am finding that youth group and Christian school is one of the best places in the world to backslide from. And it alarms me, it bothers me that something is lost between the generations. If you're here tonight and you are a second generation Christian, I want you to know that God has bestowed some blessings on your life that he has not bestowed on most of the world. Paul is writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy. He says, Timothy, I want to remind you that from a child thou hast learned the Holy Scriptures. Timothy had a godly mother. Had a godly grandmother that were the main spiritual influences in his life. And Paul reminds him of the great blessing of his life. 
and that you were taught the scriptures as a child. Timothy did not choose the family that he was born to. Timothy did not before life say, I would like to be born in a home where I can have the gospel preached to me. Timothy had nothing to do with that. God did that for him. You young people tonight, you never consider for a moment that God has blessed you more than he has blessed most of the world. Are you aware that most of the children in the world will never have the privilege of going to a good church? That most of the children in the world will never go to a camp meeting like you are in tonight. Many of you cannot ever remember a time when there was any drinking or doping or cussing in your home. That would be so foreign to you. But that is the everyday experience of most of the children of the world. You're sitting here tonight. You have heard the gospel as far back as you can remember. And you ought to thank God tonight that you're not caught up in some church that's teaching you some damnable lies that's going to send you to hell. You're not sitting here trying to figure out the truth from the lies and the deception. Nobody's teaching you a catechism and trying to teach you a catechism. No, 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 I, I tell you. But are you aware tonight that there are millions of young people tonight just like you who will die having never heard the gospel one time never heard one single verse of scripture would have no idea what John three sixteen is never had somebody pray for them all the blessings of being a second generation Christian but this is my burden I, I've got to hurry I, I know that I do here is my burden is not only are there some blessings that are unique to this generation there are are some dangers that are unique to this generation as well. There are some tendencies that's going to come to you as a second generation Christian that wouldn't come to a first generation Christian. The teenagers of my church are not tempted to cocaine. They're not tempted to hard metal rock. They're not tempted to go to some bar. I I hope tonight that none of my teen teenagers are cussing and rousing and running around the streets at two o'clock in the morning. No, they're sitting in church. They're, they're respectable. They're, they're in youth group and they're going through the motions. However, when you grow up in this way, when you have known nothing but Christian influences, when you've heard preaching 10,000 times, there is a danger. The danger is that you take for granted things that you didn't have to sacrifice for. The danger is that you begin to presume upon things that you are most familiar with. There is a danger that you don't place as high a value on that which you never paid a price for. Your faith has never cost you. You've never been laughed at. You've never been scorned. You've never lost a friend because of your Christianity. And because it's never cost you anything, there is a danger that you take it for granted. I surveyed the book of Judges. I've got to hurry. I I surveyed the book of Judges. I I wonder what happened. What happened between the first chapter and the second chapter when Joshua died and the next generation? How is that possible that they don't know the Lord nor his works? What happened? As I surveyed the book, I think I can identify three things in the book quickly. And I think the first thing that happened is they, they lost the thrill. Of knowing God. They've lost the thrill of knowing God. The statement that really gets me in verse 10 is they knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. How is that possible? What works are you talking about? Red Sea, manna, 
brazen serpent, smitten rock. That's the works that he's talking about. How is it possible one generation they don't know that? But that's what it says. And, And the fathers, by the way, the fathers in Deuteronomy 6 are commanded to keep those stories alive by telling them in the home. But there is a generation that has lost a connection to the supernatural works that defined their heritage. And they have no thrill, no awe, no wonder, no amazement at what God can do. I wonder if over time the fathers got too busy to tell the stories. I wonder if over time they spent too much time watching television, didn't have time to do family altar. Is it possible that the fathers got bored with the stories and quit telling them? Because how do you not tell your children about the miracles of God? How do you not tell God or tell your children what God has done in the past? How is it possible that the supernatural becomes mundane? And the great tradition of passing on those works to the children has been neglected. One of the dangers of a child who has heard the stories of the Bible 10,000 times is that it becomes boring to you. Is it not true that the best Christians in our church comes out of the worst cults? The Catholics, the Jehovah's Witness, the Mormons. And the reason why is because they compare the heresy that they lived and the truth. And when they compare the truth, I mean, truth is just so precious to them. Well, there's a generation you've known nothing but truth. And so you don't know how to value that truth. You don't have damnable lives to compare it to. And you've heard it all of your life. And, and we lose the wonder of the word. And so you pick up your Bible for morning devotions. And you have to force yourself through five chapters of the Bible. You, you've heard it. You, you've got it memorized. And, and it's lost and all. And, and you get more excited about last night's ball game than you do what the preacher has preached. And it's not that you don't believe it. It's not that you hate it. No, it's that you've already heard it before. I've got it memorized. I've heard a sermon on that text. Tell me something new. There, there is no more thrilling doctrine than what I get to preach every Sunday morning in my pulpit. Every Sunday morning I get in my pulpit. I preach on virgin birth. I preach on blood atonement. I preach on a resurrected Savior. I preach on salvation by grace. I mean, I mean, I mean, that's good stuff that you get to preach. But I tell you, those who are the most familiar with it are the most bored with it. You can preach glorious, glorious truth. And they look at you with glazed eyes and no move and no altar and no amens and no tears. They believe it. They believe it. But there is no wonder of God. You announce your next, next, next Sunday preacher is John 3.16. Have your congregation to check out before you read it. Because I've already heard John 3.16. I know everything there is to know about John John 3, 16, tell me something that I don't know. You see, our fathers got their convictions on their knees before an open Bible. And we got our spoon fed us from the day that we were born. And, and the first generation values truth more than anything. But the second generation wants unity and everybody just get along together. And something is lost between the generations. We've got a new family coming to our church, Corey. Uh, Christy Booth and, and um, they got saved last year. They were watching our services live streaming and, and, and she was watching the service. They, they were raised Methodists all their life. 
And they were watching our services at home, live streaming, looking for something besides Methodists, knowing that wasn't working. And she got saved, got saved at home, and they started coming to church and got baptized. And man, they're loving it, they're loving it. Corey, Corey, Corey ain't heard nothing. He ain't heard, I mean, he heard nothing. He hadn't heard anything, all right? And uh, I can preach the simplest, most pitiful little outline and say absolutely nothing and stumble all over myself. And Corey Booth sits there and takes notes and he's excited. And he just thinks that is the greatest thing. He thinks, he thinks that I am the greatest preacher that ever lived. And it don't matter what you preach. I could preach tie your shoes and, and he would just think that's just one. Where did I get that out of the Bible? Man, give, give me a church full of that. Everything is new to him. It doesn't take a whole lot to get him excited. There is a generation sitting there that I cannot move. They look at you with glazed eyes on Sunday morning and say, bless me as you can. But I've already heard this and, and that Bible holds no wonder for them. You see, the problem is that second generation Christianity is often a second hand Christianity. And daddy's fervor becomes the children's uh, apathy and it becomes the grandchildren's apostasy. And something's lost between the generations. I've got to hurry. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 1. And in verse, verse number 15 or 14, somewhere around there, Paul talks about, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. He said, I, I've heard about your love, your love. 30 or 40 years later, another preacher, John, writes to the same church and says, I got something against you because you've left your first love. We've got a generation tonight that is losing the thrill of knowing God. If I could take a minute tonight, I, I, if I could take a minute tonight, and if I could take a stroll down memory's lane in my mind. Being here reminds me of how I grew up. I, I, this is the only thing that I've ever known in my life. My heroes as a kid wasn't ball, ball players. My hero was preachers. Mays Jackson and Billy Kelly and Billy Canoy was one of my favorites. And Harold Sattler and Ralph Sexton. Those men were my heroes. When I grew up, we didn't have TV. We didn't have Nintendo. didn't have... PlayStation. We didn't have Xbox. We, we didn't have none of that. We had books. We had guns. We had fishing poles. We did things like we went outside and, and, and played instead of playing. No, no, no. I can't get off onto that. And, and, and we weren't on social media all day and we didn't chat and we didn't text and we didn't tweet and all of that. But, but my, my, my heroes were preachers and, and, and some men of God that had a touch on their life and, and it was their preaching that, that built me up in the faith. My, my dad pastored a little country church in, over in Kenansville, North Carolina, eastern side of North Carolina, little church that stood right in the middle of cornfields and, and he had a cassette tape ministry. Y'all wouldn't know what that is, but, but that was way back in the dark ages and had a cassette tape ministry and it's just a bunch of classic preachers and, and you could buy tape and listen to sermon tapes and boy, every time I could get a dollar or two, that, that was my thing. I had a little Sony tape recorder in my bedroom and I'd, I'd listen to those cassette sermons and preaching and one year dad had a Bible reading contest and everybody that would read their Bible through that year would get like five tapes or ten tapes or whatever it was and, and then to make it interesting, he decided that whoever read their Bible through the fastest that year would get like 25 tapes out of the cassette tape library. And I was, I don't know, 11 or 12 years old. And 
I read my Bible through in 62 days that year. Didn't get a thing out of it, but I was going to get those cassette tapes. I got those cassette tapes. And I'm telling you tonight, I'm telling you tonight that, that I used to sit as a kid in my bedroom and I'd turn that Sony tape recorder on and I can still hear ringing in my ear tonight. I can still hear Lester Roloff preaching. The mule walked on. I, I can still hear tonight. My hero was Ed Blue. I can still hear him preach tonight. Gold, diamonds, and brass. And some things I want to leave behind. And three crosses. I can still hear tonight that stately voice of R.G. Lee preaching on payday Sunday. I can hear that gravelly voice of Harold B. Sattler preaching on the grace of God. Can God provide a table in the wilderness. And I, I tell you tonight that I went to bed every night. I went to sleep with those preachers in my ear. And, and I didn't know that we weren't supposed to like some of them and what our camp. I, I didn't know all of that. I just know that God, God into that tape recorder came out through the voice of those preachers. And I tell you that those men built me up in the faith. I thank God for that. We've got a generation, we've got a generation that desperately need to hear some men of God and see something supernatural because they're losing the wonder of knowing God. God called me to preach when I was eight years old and all I wanted to do all of my life is that I just wanted to be a preacher. That's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to be a preacher. I'd go across the woods and I'd go into those tobacco silos and I'd get in those tobacco silos by myself. It's just me and the pigeons. And I'd preach to the pigeons and I would imagine myself being able to I would imagine that I was Harold Sattler and those pitiful pigeons flying around. Ain't none of them ever got saved, but boy, I preached to them. And I'd go down to the pond and I'd, I'd preach to the snapping turtles and the water moccasins and I'd climb the rafters of that open air tabernacle and I'd pray and I'd weep at night and I'd wet my pillow at night and I'd beg God to somehow let me preach and somehow God to put his hand upon me. And I, I felt the move of God. I, I have felt the touch. I know that God came and I, I know that God, but how do we ever expect our children to have an awe of God if we don't? Most of our children have never seen a miracle. Never seen a prayer answered. They know that God is good. They don't know that God is supernatural. And somebody must get a hold of God. Somebody, somebody must get a prayer through. Somebody must get a touch from above. I've got to hurry. There's a danger tonight. There's a danger when this is all you know, you lose the thrill of knowing God. There's a danger tonight from the book of Judges. That when this is all you know, you lose respect for the Word of God. Four times, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. They demand a king. It's rooted in rebellion. We want to be like all the other nations. Rebellion becomes the defining character of that generation. I believe the fundamental problem that we're facing in America is questioning authority. Who is in charge. No society, no institution can survive without regard to authority. You will either have authority or you will have anarchy. You can't have peace in your home. You can't have order in society. You can't have power in your church without respect for authority. What is our authority tonight? Our authority tonight is the Word of God. Are we not people of the book? Do we not say that it is, our, it is our final authority in all matters of faith 
and practice. Well, the generation in Judges had the same law as the generation in Joshua. They got the same revelation, same law. They got the same word from Moses and the Lord. They have the same line of prophets. They have the same line of priests as their fathers did. But in the book of Judges, it no longer holds sway over their life. And as time moves on, they begin to move away from that book. And their lives more and more begins to betray a disregard for the authority over them. And eventually their lives would resemble nothing of what it's supposed to according to that book. Can I tell you, Mom and Dad, that one of the worst things that you can do is tell your children that you believe the Bible and then don't live it. To lift it up in devotions and tear it down in your living. To tell them how much you love it and how much you respect it and show them how much you hate it with your double life. Brother Bobby mentioned the verse last night in 1 John. It says, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. Stay with me tonight. I'm, 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 trying. I'm really trying to move. If ever there was a verse that seems not to be true, it is that verse. Because I've known many believers that was grieved at the commandments of God. I've known many believers that was upset, got offended, left the church over the commandments of God. Grieved because it presumed to be their authority. Grieved because somebody would dare to tell them how to live. If I preach tonight on the doctrines of the Bible, nobody get upset. If I preach tonight on the promises of the Bible, nobody get upset. If I preach tonight on the attributes of God, everybody be fine with that. I preach too long on the commandments of God, somebody is going to get grieved. Amen. Not my church. Don't mean to kill the camp meeting. I know I already have. But you got several days to revive it, all right? But I tell you, the Bible, the Bible is explicitly clear that women ought to dress modestly. It's one of the biggest battles that a pastor has to fight. Go to the beach in the summer. Take half your clothes off. Lay in a public place. Post pictures all over Facebook. I'm going to tell you something. There's something in that about that. Run around town in short, skimpy clothes and halter tops that show your bra straps. And teenage girls pouring themselves in tight blue jeans that look like they've been painted on. Wiggling their rear end in front of a boy hoping somebody that will lust after them. I tell you that the Bible has something to say about that. But ain't no preacher, ain't no preacher going to tell you that your dress is too loose. You're already mad tonight. I understand that. You cry sing in a minute. We'll get it back up. Ain't nobody going to tell you that your dress is too sensuous and too early and too immodest. I tell you that for you, the commandments are grievous. I checked it this afternoon. Hebrews 2, 10, 25 still gives the principle of faithfulness to the house of God. It's only one verse in the Bible. But if there was a verse on every page of the Bible, it's not going to make a difference. Go on vacation and don't go to church on Sunday. Something is wrong. Go camping on the weekend. Miss church on Sunday morning. You'll go to church on Monday. You'll go to work on Monday with double pneumonia. Stay home for church two weeks if you sneeze twice. I tell you that for you, the commandments are it's either the authority or it's not. 
And I'm telling you that the worst thing in the world that you can do is tell your children how much you believe the Bible and don't live it. You'll raise a heathen that way is what you'll do. I feel like preaching a little bit. I am amazed. I am amazed tonight at how easy it is for the people of God to make excuses to disobey the clear commands of the Word of God. It as if it holds no sway over our lives. We are King James Bible believers and we'll wave it in the air, but it is not about to tell me how I should live. And we have taught our children the fundamentals of God, but we've not taught them the fear of God. And our children see our hypocrisy and they understand that all that we have is empty theory. And the preacher is not going to tell you that your dress is slinky and that your music is worldly and that your attitude sinks. No, you're going to do what is right in your own eyes. Not my church, not my church. I don't want to take liberties that do not belong to me. There is absolutely no use to tell your children not to listen to pop music if you're listening to country music. You spend hours watching TV and, and, and on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all the rest of it, and your kids never see you crack a Bible, no use to tell them to read their Bible. And we wonder how, we wonder how that our children can have the Bible pumped into them for 16, 17 years and they have no respect for them. It doesn't correct them. It doesn't speak to them. It doesn't say anything to them. How is it possible that they have God's word in one hand and rebellion in another hand and they're not bothered by it? It's because it's just a textbook. It's not inspired. It's not living. It's not breathing. It's not speaking. And there is a danger. That you lose respect for the Word of God. I gotta hurry, I gotta hurry, I gotta hurry. I'm done, I'm done. Something is lost between the generations. When I survey the book of Judges, it seems like that they have lost the thrill of knowing God. It seems like that they have lost respect for the Word of God. When I survey the book of Judges, it looks like that they have lost the will to conquer. The refrain of Judges is they failed to completely drive out the inhabitants of Canaan. They were supposed to be conquerors. Instead, they're compromisers. They didn't have any fight. They didn't have any grit. They have any backbone. Their motto is peace at any price. The generation of my father, the generation of my father had something that this new generation doesn't have. They had a holiness. They had a separation. And they had the courage of their convictions. They were fine with the fact that they were peculiar, that they were different. They weren't ashamed of what they believed and how they lived. But we lost something between the generations. 
And the generation that we're raising is more like the world than ever before. No distinction in the music. No distinction in the dress. No distinction in the entertainment. No distinction in the philosophies. And there's no edge. There's no power. There's no touch. Our distinction was our advantage. But when we sacrificed the distinction, we lost the advantage. Samson's the classic case. Keeper of the Nazarite vow, possessor of the power of God. But he didn't make the connection between the two. And when he sacrificed the Nazarite vow, he lost the power of God. One of the saddest verses in the Bible, he wished not that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from him. And I know, I know tonight that many times we've placed more emphasis on the outwardly than we have the inward. And I know many times we have been guilty of preaching just standards. And some have left our churches and they've revolted against that. But they went all the way over to the other side where there are no standards. And I can't get off onto this. I can't get off onto this. It bothers me when a young preacher boy leaves our independent Baptist church, drops all of his standards, picks up an electric guitar, and then shoots at me because I decide not to. I don't care if you want to go Andy Stanley and Stephen Furtick, but must I become the enemy because I don't want to do that? I don't, I don't care what direction you want to go. I don't care if you want to go to the movie theaters, but am I in the enemy because I don't want to go? Why am I the, why am I the hypocrite because I didn't move? What this generation desperately needs is some grit and some guts. If every church decides to go contemporary Christian music, then don't let this one. And if every teenage girl is going to wear skin-tight blue jeans, then why don't you not? And if every young preacher boy coming out of our Christian colleges are going to go ecumenical, evangelical... Why don't some young preacher Roy would say I'm going to stay in the old time way? When you have been raised, and this is all that you know, there's a danger that you become too familiar. And you take for granted things that you've never paid a price for. There's a danger that the supernatural becomes boring and mundane. There's a danger that you lose the thrill of knowing God. There's a danger, there's a danger that you have second-hand information but you've never had a first-hand experience. In our church, we've got good kids. Cream of the crop is here tonight. It really is. And I hesitate to preach this tonight because I know who's here. But it's not good enough just to be good. Because you can sit on the front church pew. You can wear a tie. You can sing in the youth choir. But I want to know, does your heart ever burn for God? I want to know, do you ever get alone with God and pour your heart out to Him? And I want to know, do you want the touch of God in your life more than anything in this world? Oh, give me a young man that will read your Bible without somebody telling you to. Give me a teenage boy that knows how to pray. 
that surrenders everything to God. That has a tenderness for the things of God. Give me one young lady. Give me one young lady that will love God more than her boyfriend. It doesn't have to be sleeky and sexy and seductive. That has a tender heart. A spiritual heart. That is the same out there as she is in here. I want to know, does your heart ever burn for God? I want to know, have you ever felt the hand of God on your life? Have you ever felt His touch? Have you ever felt His anointing? Something lost between the generations. I've got three kids tonight serving God. The thrill of my life. The other morning I got up, I was at four o'clock walking. And I was praying. And I said, oh God, put your hand upon Jacob. God, would you touch Megan? And touch Parker. I've got two little granddaughters. got a grandson on the way. God, would you touch Paisley? Oh God, would you do something to JL? To Anthony that's coming. May they know. May they know that their daddy knows God. Their daddy lived what he preached. And the greatest joy of my life will be the one day as an old man to watch my children and my grandchildren walking in the same path that I walked in. Oh, that there may be nothing lost between the generations. Can I have a piano player? Can I? It was okay. I wonder if there's a young man tonight that would just come. That when I preached tonight, has struck a chord in your heart. I know it's crowded. Would you come tonight and say, God, would you put your hand on me? I need your touch tonight. I wonder if there's a young lady, young girl, teenager.